great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. As we look to the center of these circles, we ask ourselves, what is it that's at the center of my life? Jesus Christ says he wants to be at the center of our lives, and if we ever invite him there, that we'll experience real life, abundant life on earth, and everlasting life after earth. Before I do the sermon this morning, I wanted to take just a, a quick moment for, um, we, we don't, uh, just to ask you to celebrate something with me, we don't spend a lot of time um, talking about the like church giving and church finances and all that kind of stuff and the reason for that and like church systems and the reason for that is like they're healthy if you have good blood pressure you don't talk about it all the time right you just live and uh, and that's kind of what we do as a church we don't spend a lot of time on this uh, we, we do the important stuff the ministry stuff but one or two times a year we like to just take a quick moment just to give you an, an update a heads up of where we are so you can be in the know, and on this one, celebrate with me, because 2018, which seems like it was forever ago, but 2018 uh, was another um, good, healthy six, uh, year for our church family. Within the year 2018, you guys, we, us, we, uh, our family gives too, but we collectively gave uh, $1,100,000 or so. That is the most our congregation has ever uh, given in our seven, seven and a half year history. Um, so that was very exciting, uh, un and it's not like one or two people are carrying that load. It's everybody doing what they're able to do, and collectively, that's, that's how it comes together. And then our staff and ministry leaders um, underspent that number by about $125,000. And again, that's not like one line item underspent. That's like each, uh, all line items carefully uh, managed, and most of them underspent. And so, so we have a surplus. <laughs> We have our seventh surplus in our seventh year history, and so that's great. It's more fun to have surplus conversations than the other, um, and it allows us to, to do generous things and to pour a little uh, gas on some of the, the fires, the good fires, that, uh, that we have here in our, the life of our church, and so our elders will, will do that in the months ahead. Um, but I just want to say that to you to say thank you. Uh, thank you for doing what you are able to do uh, as far as giving generously to the ministry of the church. And, uh, and I hope and I think we're good stewards of it, but as we all work together, as we give together, as we spend carefully together, we're able to do amazing sort of things. To give you a, a heads up for next year, or this year, 2019, but the next fiscal year, we are asking God uh, to provide through the congregation about a 6% increase over the giving of last year. We think that's um, wise, and uh, while also having a little bit of faith in it. And so that uh, 6%. And so I think what that'll look like is uh, folks who aren't able to give, finding a way to give. Folks who give but sporadically, finding a way to make it a more routine part of our lives. And then those who already give generously, to continue to give, to continue to give generously uh, here in 2019. And somehow, as all that comes together, God will do amazing things through our church family, but in each of our hearts as well. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. So part of why we churches do every once in a while, we don't try to do it all the time, but every once in a while, talk about money. As Jesus says, one of the ways he's going to get to your heart is through your pocketbook. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. He called his shot there, and he's true to it. So uh, 
just an encouraging, good report. The thing I do want you to notice, a lot of our increase in spending in 2019 is going to be external. So in 2018, we gave around $190,000 externally between missions, church planting, uh, other churches in our denomination, and the staff costs to do that. Uh, in 2019, we uh, expect that number to go up to 250000 so a fair number of that 6% increase, not all of it, but a fair number of it, it is uh, to be able to do more, even more externally. So I just want you to be in the know. Do you feel in the know? Excellent. Do you feel thanked? Thank you that these are the conversations we get to have. And this is an easy, fun little part of the service, <laughs> Every one, like once a year. Thank you for that. We don't take that for granted. If you do ever want to go deeper, see more about the budget or whatever, we don't vote on budgets or anything like that. Our, our elders uh, study the budget and vote on that. But if you ever wanted to see the budget or whatever, just talk to an elder. They would be willing to, to walk, you through, walk you through all that. But there you go. That's my update. Thank you. That's what I hope you take away from it. Thank you. On to the sermon. All right, so the sermon today. I got some good news and I got some bad news. What do you want first? How many of you want the good news first? How many of you want the bad news first? How many of you didn't vote because you're pretty sure this is a sermon illustration? <laughs> you're correct. The last group is correct. Actually, this has been true at all three services today. You, you guys fall out similar. They've done studies of this. When you ask that question, 75% of people want the bad news first. And what they found is if you start with the bad news and end with the good news, it makes you less anxious or less fearful. They've also found that if you start with the good news, it makes you more eager to change the bad news. So there are times it's really wise to ask for the good news first, and there are times it's really wise to ask for the good news last. The point I want to make, though, is that the Christian faith is the best of both worlds, because you could summarize the Christian faith this way. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news, and I've got some good news. The Christian faith both begins and ends with the good news. So I've got some good news. God created this world to share in his joy. God created you to share in his joy, to share in his life, to share in his abundance. You were created in God's image. God has knit value and purpose into the fabric of your being, and no one can take that away. I've got some bad news. You and I rebel against God, and we create all kinds of turmoil in our lives and in our world. And the Bible word for this is sin. Sin refers to missing the mark. Sin refers to missing the target, missing God's target. Sin refers to the ways that we leave God's path to go our own way. Sin is rebellion against God, and sin separates us from God, and that separation causes all kinds of turmoil in our lives and all kinds of turmoil in our world as we seek out someone or something worthy of our worship, as we seek out security and unconditional love. But I've got some good news. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, God offers to forgive and transform each of us. So the good news is that God created you and this world to share in his joy, his life, his abundance. The bad news is that through sin, we, we have lost sight of that. We are like a beautiful ship that has gotten shipwrecked. 
And now we're just trying to figure out what to do in, in the remains. Uh, Gray used an illustration a few weeks ago. We are a beautiful cathedral that's sort of the roof is falling in now. A, a cathedral in ruins, I think he said. But the good news is that through Jesus Christ, uh, God offers to forgive and transform each of us. That through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, God offers to forgive you. God offers to transform you. God is not going to overlook your sin or overlook my sin. God wants to forgive your sin. Can you imagine looking into the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus and hearing him say those words? You are forgiven. So this year, during Lent, during the 40 days leading up to Easter, this is what we want to focus on. This is our topic for the next six weeks. The topic is sin. We're going to put out every chair that we can. Phone the neighbors, take out a billboard. For six weeks, we want to study sin, what the Bible says about sin. But specifically, we want to look at what the early Christians called the seven deadly sins. They saw these as sort of like the seven core sins, the seven fundamental sins. These were the sins out of which all other sins originated in their minds. And it, they researched and studied this very carefully. In fact, our uh, sister church, in fact, our mother church, Lake Forest in Huntersville, some of their ministry partners put together a devotional around the seven deadly sins. Uh, and we have some at that table, we have some at the table in the lobby. So if you would enjoy going a little bit deeper, or reflecting a little more devotionally on these, we'd encourage you to grab those. It's a great resource that our friends at Lake Forest Huntersville made available to us. And not like the professional Christians there, like the, like the ministry partners, like the, the rank and file Christians, right? The, the, the good old Christians, they're who put this together. So I hope you would, will enjoy that resource if, if you would like it. The Bible describes sin this way, Romans chapter 7. It says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Lent is often a time where we think about giving up stuff, but actually the original hope of Lent was that you would put off and put on. You, you would put off the old and you would put on the new. In other words, that you would uproot some of the old, uproot one or multiple things in your life that you did not want to be there, and that you would plant something in its place. So why we're doing this series is to sort of give you a sense of, as Jesus is transforming you, what is it that Jesus and you are going to, together, working together, uproot in your life, and what are you and Jesus going to plant in its place? And the ancient Christians took the first stab at this. They identified seven deadly, remember, core sins, and they partnered each of them with a Christ-like or godly virtue to plant in its place. So basically, that's how this series is going to work. Every week, we're going to do one or two of the sins and the virtues and just kind of work through what does the Scripture teach about them, what can we learn about ourselves about them, and ultimately, how do they point us, point us to Jesus. If this series can be accused of having a point, it would be this. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and being transformed. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are being transformed. And I hope that a more, and I pray that a more robust understanding of the bad news of sin will get, get us to a place where we realize how good the good news really is. 
as we come to a greater awareness of our need for God's forgiveness, as we clarify what Jesus is trying to uproot in our lives and plant in its place, I hope that you and I will be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of Jesus. So that if you live by faith in Christ, or if you ever come to live by faith in Christ, you would know that you are forgiven and you are being transformed. Today, I don't want to talk about any of the seven deadly sins themselves. I want to ease in by looking at the passage Amy read for us earlier, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, the end of Luke chapter 7. Of course, if you don't have a Bible, you can always take the one in the chair as our gift. My sermon this morning is about becoming a more loving person. That's the point of the sermon today, how to become a more loving person. Because isn't that what we want? We want to be more loving. We, we want to be spiritually mature, but we want to be spiritually mature in a way that makes us more loving. So the sermon this morning is about how to become a more loving person. I'm just going to warn you, you are not going to think that's what this sermon is about. You are going to think I am driving you out into the desert. And then at the last moment, I'm going to make a hard right-hand turn, and we are going to be at Disney World. In fact, Disney World, where there is no daylight savings time, the best possible Disney World that there is. Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited over for dinner. Talk about pressure. Jesus is invited over for dinner. Talk about cleaning up the clutter, right? Have to go, what's that lady's name? Marie Kondo, yeah. Gives me cold sweat just to, you know, to hear the name. A guy at 8.15 said, he just shudders when he thinks about it. So you got to go full Marie Kondo. You got to clear out everything, clear out all the clutter. Jesus is coming over for dinner. Of course, Jesus sees through facades, but that doesn't stop us from trying, right? Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Pharisee means this is a well-studied religious leader of Jesus' day. This Pharisee has met Jesus. At some level, he is fascinated by Jesus. He invites Jesus to come over for dinner. Everything's going fine so far. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, so you invite Jesus in, everything doesn't go according to plan. So, so this lady comes up, she has a jar of perfume. Now we don't at this point know what she plans to do with it. Maybe it's a gift for Jesus, we're not 100% sure. But what we know about this woman is that she lives a sinful life. That's all the Bible tells us. She lives a sinful life. She is best known for how badly her life has missed God's target. She, she is best known for the, how badly she has left God's path to follow her own. And yet, in this beautiful turn of events, she wants to be with Jesus. Her life is broken. She is seeking out someone who knows how to make mosaics. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Okay, now dinner's getting a little bit weird. But Jesus does not seem thrown off by this. The Pharisee, we learned, is a little thrown off by this. Jesus does not seem thrown off by this. This woman lets herself into or is let into the Pharisee's house. She comes with her jar of perfume, and as she begins to approach 
Jesus, she is overcome. She is overwhelmed. She just starts weeping. And it's not like a little subtle quiet tear. It's like ugly, sloppy, I cannot stop crying. Jesus' feet actually start getting wet from all the tears. Now, she didn't have a rag to wipe them off, so she starts to wipe them off with her hair. She starts to kiss his feet, and then she starts to pour the perfume that she brought onto his feet. This would have been a sign of, of respect or a sign of honor to a dignitary of that era. So you have this woman down at the feet of Jesus, and she can say nothing. She is overcome, overcome with grief about the condition of her life, or overcome with emotion that Jesus is not shooing her away, but she just sits at his feet and weeps. What does spiritual maturity look like? A little change of topic, but go with me. What does spiritual maturity look like? I think one of the questions Luke chapter 7 wants us to answer, or at least ask, is what does spiritual maturity look like? What does spiritual maturity look like to Jesus? Because you've got on one side this sort of learned religious leader. He's sitting at the table with Jesus. He wants to have a deep conversation, a deep theological conversation with Jesus. So if you ask me, I'd kind of put him up here on the spiritual maturity scale. And then you've got a woman weeping on the floor, so desperate for Jesus, she can't even utter a word. So clearly she has lived a pretty sinful life. So I'm going to put her like down here on the spiritual maturity scale. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So yes, I was correct in how I ranked their spiritual maturity here, because now the Pharisee thinks he's better than the woman. She's a sinner, after all. But he also thinks he's better than Jesus, because Jesus has a little too much compassion on the spiritual riffraff. So this Pharisee is definitely really high up on the spiritual maturity scale, because how else could he be looking down on so many people at once? This is Pharisee. This Pharisee would be excited when his church did a six-week series on sin. He, he, he couldn't sleep. He'd be so excited. I mean, a lot of these people need to hear about this. You know, everybody else needs to understand what the Bible says about sin. Everybody else needs to look deep into their lives. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So the Pharisee is named Simon. Jesus tells him a story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Very important detail. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon's thinking, is this a trick question? you got two guys who owe money. One owes 10 times the amount of the other. One owes 500 denarii. The other owns, uh, owes 50 denarii. If you have a Bible or you look at the one in the chair, there's probably a footnote that will tell you what a denarius is. It is a day's wage. So one guy owes a month and a half of wages and the other owes a year and a half of wages. Now think about that difference for you. One owes a month and a half of salary or of tuition. The other owes a year and a half of salary or tuition. What are those numbers for you? 
But the deal is this, neither of them has the money to pay back the debt. Neither of them has the money. They both owe a debt they cannot repay. And one owes a lot and one owes a little, but neither of them have the money to pay it. And so this money lender, realizing they have debts that they cannot repay, he could have them thrown into a debtor's prison for the rest of their lives. But instead, he is moved by compassion and he forgives both of the debts. Now, is forgiveness easy? Forgiveness cheap? If you've ever had to forgive someone, you know forgiveness is difficult. Forgiveness is costly. And in this instance, it's the money lender who has to account for the money who's not coming his way. The debt still has to be dealt with, but the debt is going to be paid internally instead of paid for by an external source. Right? When you forgive somebody's debt, the debt doesn't go away. You just agree to, to account for it internally. You still have to do that. So forgiveness is not easy and forgiveness is not cheap. In this story, the moneylender decided, though, that he would satisfy the forgiveness of the debt internally instead of making someone external pay for it. And so Jesus goes back to Simon. Simon, when these two people have their unrepayable debt forgiven, which of them is going to shake the moneylender's hand and which of them is going to give the moneylender a huge bear hug? Which of them is going to sit at a table and have an intellectual discussion with their forgiver? And which of them is going to weep at their forgiver's feet? At this point, Simon cannot look away from the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus. They seem to be zeroing in on him, and so he offers a very guarded answer to Jesus' question, who will love the moneylender more? Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. That's a very Jesus way of saying, thank you, Captain Obvious. And you probably see Jesus' point. Simon definitely sees Jesus' point. Jesus is about to drive it home. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I told you this was a sermon about love. And you may remember my little spiritual maturity ranking. We had the Pharisee up here and then I had the woman in the sinful life here. Jesus is going to mess up my little ranking now. Because he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, you didn't give me water for my feet. That would be customary for an honored guest. She's been wetting my feet with her tears. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss when I arrived. That would have been customary for an honored guest. She's almost giving me too many kisses. Uh, Simon, you didn't put oil on my head. Customary for an honored guest. She is pouring perfume on my feet. Simon, she loves me in a way that you do not. Simon, she is mature in a way that you are not. And here's the difference. She knows how much she's been forgiven. 
she knows how bad the bad news really is. And so she is overcome by how good the good news really is. As Jesus was dying on the cross years later, he said this, it's recorded in John chapter 19. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In other words, he died. So of Jesus' final words, it is finished. Dr. Bud tells me the Greek of that is tetelestai. You don't have to write that down. It's not on the final exam. Tetelestai. Tetelestai is what in that day and time you would have written at the top of a bill that had been paid in full. It is finished. Tetelestai. So in other words, Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, invokes a monetary term. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. The bill is paid in full. He picks up on this conversation he started at the house of Simon years ago in which Jesus compared sin to a debt that we could not repay. We owe God something for the ways that we rebel against him. We owe God something for the turmoil we cause in this world. But it's a debt that we cannot repay. We have broken things that we cannot simply glue back together. So are we on the hook for what we owe? Well, Jesus decided that as being fully God and fully human, he would willingly forgive that unrepayable debt. But that instead of putting us on the hook for it, he would deal with it internally. God dealt with this internal to God's own self. Jesus' death satisfies God's need for justice because it called out sin, and it called sin wrong. It judged sin for the ways it's corrupted God's wonderful world, for the ways it's corrupted the lives of people that God loves. So Jesus willingly withstood divine justice so that you and I don't have to. He paid a debt we could never repay. He did not leave us on the hook for it. He accounted for it internally. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is not cheap. He doesn't just overlook what we owe God, what I owe God, what you owe God. He offers to forgive it. The headline then of the death of Jesus is this. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your unrepayable debt is forgiven. If you hadn't figured out the parable yet, he's the money lender, you're the dude who owes the money. When you put your faith in Jesus, when I put my faith in Jesus, our unrepayable debt is forgiven. Even if you don't understand how all the piping of it works, it gets swallowed up in the infinite mercy of your Creator. It's not cheap and it's not easy, but He accounts for it internally. He swallows it up in His infinite mercy. The infinite mercy of your Redeemer, the infinite mercy of your friend, Jesus Christ. But the question I want us to wrestle with is this. How big of a debt was it? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your unrepayable debt is forgiven. How big of a debt was it? If you put your faith in Jesus, or if you ever come to put your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven, and you're being transformed. Your unrepayable debt is forgiven. How big of a debt was it? 
In fact, at the end of the passage, Jesus looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sometimes we'll end the service, like after communion, we'll end the service instead of with a benediction by saying, go in peace. It sounds like this sweet little thing we made up. No, it's taken from the story of Jesus in which he looks at someone and says, you have been forgiven so much, and because of that, you love so much. Go in peace. Don't we long to hear those same words said to us? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, when you put your faith in Jesus, or if you ever come to the place of putting your faith in Jesus, if that happened in the past, or for you it happens in the future, when you come to that place, those words are true for you. I hope they get imprinted deep on your soul. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The question is, how big of a debt was it? And Jesus says our answer to that question matters. It'll start to play out in our lives. It will, it will either be a, a, a lid or a, open the lid on how much we're able to love God. It will, it will determine how much that love does or does not spill over into the relationships in our lives and the people that God puts in our place. It reminds me of sort of a closing illustration. It reminds me of a buddy of mine who um, some years ago decided to stop paying his bills. Now, I don't suggest this necessarily. If you're young, getting started in life, don't do this. But this is what he did. He stopped paying his bills. It just got to be too much, too much stress. And so when a, a bill would come, he just put it in this one room in his house. He just put it in a room in his house, put it in a room in his house, put it in a room in his house. He'd get a call, debt collector, hang up. And he lived like this for a little while. And then at some point, he started to get so many calls and so many letters, he started to think, maybe I should start paying my bills again. And here's how he convinced himself to start again. He said, I mean, it can't be that bad. You know what he discovered as he opened up those envelopes that were being mailed and as he listened to what the people on the other end of the line were saying? He discovered, no, it was bad. It was really bad. And I think that's what Luke chapter 7 is saying about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is the willingness to ask Jesus for the courage to dig and to dig and to dig and to open scary envelope after scary envelope. And what started as like, I am thankful that Jesus forgave my sins, but it wasn't that bad. Starts to become something more. Like in my head, I sort of imagine, like what if, what if when the bills were all stacked up in the one room, one day there was a and a knock on the door, he opens the door, it's Jesus. Not, not who he was expecting, but it's Jesus. He said, hi, I'm Jesus. Oh, hi, I'm, you know, whatever, Larry. Uh, I don't want to give his name away. Uh, so, hi, hi. And Jesus said, I just want you to know, um, I've, I paid everything you owed. I, I took care of all your bills. Well, the right thing to do would be to give Jesus a firm handshake and say, thank you, Jesus. And then go back and live your life. 
But then just curiously, you might want to open an envelope. And you say, oh, I owe that much? He gave, he paid that much? Then you'd open the next envelope. He he took care of that? He, and then you'd listen to what the phone collectors were... Oh, I, I owed you that much, but I don't owe you anything? And at some point, what had started as a good, firm handshake and a thank you, a sincere thank you, might become a gratitude so deep you would think your heart was about to burst. So I suppose my question for us is this, what's well, a statement followed by a question. The statement is, through faith in Jesus, you are forgiven and being transformed. If you have faith in Jesus, or if any point in the future you have faith in Jesus, you are forgiven and you are being transformed. As Jesus' follower, you are forgiven and being transformed. Is that a minor undertaking or a major undertaking for Jesus? to forgive you and to transform you, to uproot the old and plant the new. Is that a minor or a major undertaking for Jesus? The answer, he says, will start to play out in your life. And so it bears our reflection because our lives will reflect the answer. So let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, a chance to listen to God, to listen for God's voice. I don't know where the service today is intersecting with your life. And I pray that the service today would not be one that inspires guilt or shame, but that instead gets you to look into the deep and compassionate eyes of Jesus. So just take this moment for personal prayer. Jesus, we long to hear the words the woman heard. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so, Lord, I don't know where we come into this room today. those who come and have followed you for years, but sometimes we can tend to be more like the one who wants to sit at the table and have an intellectual conversation. Or those of us who come and are just investigating who you are. 
those of us who are new in our faith, or we've been a Christian for a while, but we've never really grown all that much. I don't know where we come into this today, but you do. You hold each of our lives and each of our stories in your hand. So I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would make us like this woman. We would come to you as our hope. Not just our plan C in case everything else doesn't work out, but our true hope. And that in doing so, we would see those words come off your lips and go deep into our souls. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.